How's everybody doing today? Great, good. It's good to see all of you here with us. Uh, as Robert uh, was mentioning earlier, we are starting a new series today called Unexpected, talking about the miracles of Jesus. And so to get us started, I'd love for us to look at a picture together. So go ahead if you guys can. Uh, this is the Loreto Chapel in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Just out of pure curiosity, how many of you have ever heard of this place? Oh, a couple of you actually have heard Nobody in the first service had. I didn't think anybody would have ever heard of this place, just from where we are in the country. So I want to draw your attention to the spiral staircase that goes up uh, to the choir loft there. Uh, that's, that spiral staircase was built sometime between 1877 and 1881. And the story that's been handed down to us from the Sisters of Loretto is that basically they needed someone to build a staircase so they could get up to their choir loft. And so they consulted several business uh, or builders in town, but nobody would be willing to try to build a staircase because a workable solution couldn't be found. It was such a confined, tight space. Nobody could figure out how to build a staircase to get up there. And so what the nuns decided to do is they decided to fast and pray every single day until God provided an answer. And so that's exactly what they did. They began to fast and pray. And on the ninth day that they'd been fasting and praying, a mysterious stranger appeared. And he offered to build a staircase for them. He had one small bag filled with some hand tools. And he worked completely by himself in seclusion. And he built this staircase. And just to give you some idea, the staircase rises 20 feet into the air. And it makes two complete turns all the way to the top. Very tight space, very uh, tight turns. But the most amazing part about this staircase, the thing that to this day is still sort of a marvel of the architectural world, it's kind of a work of art, is that it does so without any obvious means of support. In other words, it has no center pole or newel. We're still not quite sure exactly how it stands on its own weight, but 140 years later, you can still go to this chapel and you can walk up the steps of the Loreto Chapel of this stairway. As the story goes, when the mysterious stranger had finished, the nuns went to look for him to thank him for his work and for what he had done to build this staircase, to only to find that he had disappeared. And no one knew his name. Nobody ever found out his name. Nobody knew where he came from. Nobody knew where he went. You don't think, do you? I mean, was this a, was this a miracle? We're exploring with this series, this idea of miracles. And so uh, really what's interesting is, I'll just put this out on the table. The question so much of this series is not, does God still do miracles? I'll just put, lay my cards out on the table and say, I think he does. I think God still does miracles today. I think he's still active and at work in our world today. Um, and sometimes we can see those miracles with our eyes. Sometimes we can't. But I believe he's at work all the time around us. The question really of this series and what we're wrestling with is the question, who does Jesus do miracles for? I mean, when you look at the gospels, who exactly does Jesus do miracles for? You might think to yourself, well, probably good people, holy people, righteous people, right? That's probably who Jesus does miracles for. But actually, when you read the gospels, I can show you story after story where a person was absolutely not righteous, they were a sinner, they were unrepentant, they hadn't turned from their sins or anything, and they still experienced a miracle. You might say to yourself, well, probably it was people who had faith. You know, people who displayed great faith in Jesus, those were the ones who experienced a miracle. And that's true in some places. Jesus says to some people after he healed them, your faith has made you well. 
But it's not always true. I can show you several stories in the Gospels where a person displayed no faith at all in Jesus, and yet they still experienced a miracle. So what was the common denominator? What was, what was the, the thing that was similar for every single person that experienced a miracle in the Gospels? Here's what it was. Every person who experienced a miracle in the gospel stories is a person who had a need that was too big for them. It was a need that they couldn't meet, that they couldn't fix in their own power, in their own ability. And that's good news for us this morning. Because while some of us may not be holy, righteous people, I bet you every single one of us, what we have in our lives, somewhere in our lives, every one of us has a need that's too big for us. It's outside the bounds of what we can do and we can solve for ourselves. A miracle is anytime our need that is too big for us to meet meets the power, the resurrecting power of Jesus. That's a miracle. Last fall, we as a church had a need that was too big for us. If you were here with us uh, during that, that journey, you know, around August, we uh, had an evaluation done from a couple different companies on, on our roof, knowing that we had had some leaks and things. And so what came back was we have seven weak spots on our roof. And what we were told is you need a new roof. And the price tag, the cost of a new roof, as we began to look at it, was $500,000, half a million dollars for a new roof. Right about this same exact uh, period of time, we began to discover that our sound system, which is pretty old, um, began to fail us more and more. And so we need, we need a new sound system. In fact, from the fall to now, we've spent about $8,000 out of our operating budget just repairing our sound system because there's so many things going wrong with it at this point. Not, not, fix, not you know, upgrading it or making it better, just fixing junk that's breaking on it. And so a new sound system, we were told to be around the, you know, the price tag of around $60,000 or so. And so we needed $560,000 that we didn't have. And so our leadership team at the time said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we go before the congregation and call the congregation to fast and to pray and to seek the Lord together, just kind of like the nuns that the, the sisters of Loretto did. Let's just fast and let's come together and we pray. And so we did that. And last fall, we prayed for 40 days uh, and just brought those needs before God and brought needs in our own lives before God. And we just fasted and prayed and asked ask God to step in. And I'm so excited to get to share this with you today. But as you fasted and as you prayed and as you sought the Lord, God answered. And he has provided for us. So the first thing that happened was over the last few months, um, several of you stepped up and decided to give above and beyond our operating budget. Now, what's interesting about that is we didn't ask anybody to give. We didn't ask you for money. We asked you to fast and to pray with us. So there was no ask for money, but several of you, as you fasted and prayed, decided to give. And so somewhere around $100,000 in addition to our operating budget was given by folks who go to this church for the sound system and the roof, which is absolutely amazing to me. That blew me away. I had no idea that was going to happen. And so that was incredible. We celebrated that a little bit um, the last few months. But here's the thing, $100,000, while we weren't expecting it, and that's incredible, $500,000 for a new roof, Right. So what happened was a few months ago through a connection, through a relationship here in the church, we met uh, a Christian business owner who is very reputable in our community, has done a lot of work on a lot of roofs of a lot of buildings. 
And through a connection with him, they went up on our roof and they looked and they said, actually, yes, you do need these seven weak spots on the roof repaired. That needs to happen as soon as possible. But the roof itself, the rubber of the roof and the seams where the roof comes together, actually, that's in pretty good shape. In actuality, we think there's still some life left on the, the overall part of the roof, the rubber on the roof. And so they said, here's what we're willing to do. For $40,000, we will fix the seven weak spots on the roof and repair those, and then we will warranty the roof for three years. Isn't that incredible? That's not even the best part. I'm not even to the good part yet. So with the 40, they said uh, in three years from now, we'll warranty if anything goes wrong with the roof, we'll repair it. But in three years from now, we'll look and maybe you'll need a new roof in three years. Maybe you won't. But if so, we're going to be willing to do this for much cheaper than $500,000 because of this partnership with them, which is just incredible that God has provided for that. So with the $40,000 to fix the roof and then the money in addition that was given, we've got enough money to put in a new sound system as well, which will be happening this summer. So we're going to be able to put in a new sound system and fix that problem. I'm still not to the good part. This is still not even the good part yet. So that was amazing that God showed us that he could provide for our needs. And not only did we not have a $500,000 need, but what was provided by the congregation was exactly what we needed to fix it. That was amazing. But the best part is, uh, you may not know this, but we tithe on our operating budget. So just like we ask you to tithe, we take 10% of our operating budget and we give it and so um, this was money that came in. The 100000 was in addition to, uh, you know, our operating budget. And so the leadership team said, um, you know, maybe we should tithe out of that as well. And so we were able to tithe out of what was given in addition. And we were able to bless Ebenezer, which is our um, missions partner in Haiti that you were just hearing Brad talk about a moment ago. With all their unrest, the money came at just the right time for them. Uh, we were able to, to give to our partnership in Ukro, Ethiopia, our care point there, to the IGAs, the um, small business loans that are happening. We were able to give a little bit to the storehouse and a couple other ministries. And so the best part to me is God turned our incredible need as you sought him, as you sought him and prayed and fasted together, he turned our incredible need into actually a blessing for some other ministries. Now you can clap. <laughs> God did that. I don't know what you call that. I call that a miracle. If you would have told me last August, as I was sitting with this $500,000 weight on my shoulders, like, how am I going to, how am I going to fix this, right? As if there was some way I was going to fix it. I would have never believed you that God could have done that. That is a miracle to me that he did that. And so what I want to do together is I want to look at the first miracle that Jesus does in the gospel of John together. And so we're, as we look at this together, it's in John chapter 2. John, the gospel writer, actually does not call this miracle a miracle. He calls it a sign. He calls it a miraculous sign. A sign means it's something that points to the true nature of Jesus' message and his mission. So the thing about this miracle is that it points to who Jesus truly is. So let's jump in. This is John 2. It starts this way. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, which is actually a term of endearment that sons would call their mothers, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you, <laughs> which I love. It's like, even if you're the son of God, you have to do what your mom says. 
Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though even though the, the servants knew exactly where it came from, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign, that's what John calls it, this miraculous sign at Canaan and Galilee was the first time that Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believe in him. That's the first miracle that Jesus does in the gospel of John. He basically turns water into wine so that he can keep everybody's buzz going at a wedding reception. It's a little disappointing, isn't it? When you kind of hear, it's like he didn't even like build a staircase for some nuns or something like that that would really help somebody. Really, he turns water into wine so everybody can stay hammered at this wedding reception. That's what he does. But of course, there's a little bit more going on in this story. There's something much deeper underneath it here. It's a sign, remember, that points to who Jesus is. So I'd like to walk you through, if I could, those elements of the story and the symbolism connected to it. First of all, The idea of turning water into some other kind of liquid was not a new story for the people of Israel. For Jewish people at this time in the first century, they were deeply rooted in their own story, the story of the Bible and the Exodus. And so they knew the story of when Moses uh, confronted Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus, the very first sign that Moses did for Pharaoh was he turned the, the water of the Nile River into what? Do you remember? Blood. And he did that as the first sign to Pharaoh that God's judgment was on Egypt. Pharaoh was told to let God's people go to release them from slavery, and he wouldn't do it. And so turning the Nile River water into blood was a sign of judgment on the people of of Egypt. So Jesus comes along, and his first miraculous sign is he turns water into wine. Why was that significant? Wine, all throughout the Old Testament, is always spoken of in connection with blessing and joy and celebration. In fact, the prophets, whenever they talked about this moment at the end of time when God would restore everything through the Messiah, that God's redemptive plan for all of humanity would find its fulfillment at the end of time in this moment through the Messiah, they spoke of it in terms of a great feast or a great banquet with the best of wines. Multiple places it's talked about that way. Look, this is Isaiah 25, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Isaiah 25, look at how he says it. On this mountain, talking about this moment at the end of time, when God restores everything through the Messiah, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, all the nations, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So when this master of ceremonies runs to the bridegroom and says, hey, come here. Most people, when they, you know, serve uh, wine at a wedding, they bring out the best wine first. And then after everybody's hammered, then you bring out the cheap stuff. He says, but you, you've saved the best wine, the finest of wines you've saved till the very end. 
Why was that significant? Why did John include that in the story? It's because Jesus, what he had done by turning that water into wine, it was the finest of wines. He was saying everything that the prophets predicted, everything that was talked about, about that moment where God is going to restore and make it all new, he was talking about me. It's all going to be fulfilled through me. Jesus is announcing the gospel, that there's a new kingdom starting right now through me. God is going to put it all back together again through me. And so it's not, you know, it's, this is not a time for saving the, the, the junk for later. We bring out the best right now because that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. There's more to it than just that. Another clue in the story of what this miraculous sign meant is in the way Jesus turned water into wine. It says he uses these six stone water jars. Did you catch that? that were used for Jewish ceremonial cleansing. Now, what he was referring to, there were these six large water jars that would hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. You remember that was mentioned in the story. And so what Jewish people did at this time is, uh, before you would walk into someone's home or before you would go to a wedding reception, you would dip your hands in these water jars as a way of like ritual ceremonial hand washing. Now, what, the Jews didn't do this because of germs, okay? They didn't understand germs. They didn't know what germs were. You know, we have like, you know, hand sanitizer now and everything so we don't contaminate the food. That's not what they're doing. They're not washing their hands so that they don't infect each other with germs. This, this had to do with the law. It had to do with ritual purity and ritual cleanliness. When you dipped your hands in the water before entering a wedding reception, it was a way of saying, I want to remain pure from sin, I want to remain pure in my life from sin. It was a symbolic way of being ritually pure before God as a Jewish person. And Jesus says, I want you to take those stone water jars everybody's been dipping their hands in. I want you to use those to make the wine with. Why? You got to believe they'd run out of wine. There were plenty of empties lying around. There are plenty of other containers Jesus could have used. He chose to use those containers that they use for their ritual hand washing. Why? It's because for a Jewish person, ritual purity on an individual level was extremely important. It was all about following the law, making yourself pure, purifying yourself from any kind of sin, hand washing, making sacrifices, following the law. That's what it was all about. And Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. He did it for us. Like we talked about last week, he was, the, he was the first one ever to do it. Nobody in the Old Testament had been able to fulfill the law and, and actually be righteous and be pure before God. And so Jesus is literally saying, you're not going to need that stuff anymore. You can, you can use those ceremonial hand-washing jars. You're not going to need those anymore because I've come and I've fulfilled the requirements of that on your behalf. What's needed now is some wedding wine because <laughs> there's a feast coming. There's a new day here. There's a kingdom of God right here that I'm coming, I'm announcing. He's announcing his kingdom. I'm the one, he's saying, that it all pointed toward. I'm the one that, that it, all the law, the prophets, the sacrifices, it all pointed to me. I'm going to do it on your behalf. That's what he's saying. And if you're looking for something to write down, it's, it isn't about purifying yourself by your own strength, your own merit, so that you're pure on an individual level. 
It's about celebrating that Jesus has already done it on your behalf through the cross and through his resurrection. He has accomplished it on our behalf and we have new life in him. That's what he's announcing. That's why it says at the very end, it says that when the disciples saw this, that's the moment that they put their faith in him. That's the moment they began to believe in him. Why? Because of this stuff we just talked about. They understood that. They looked at that and they went, oh, he's, he's saying he's the one. Through this miracle, through this miraculous sign, he was announcing his kingdom and what he was doing and what he had come to do. So if we could take this story for a moment, if we could turn it toward ourselves, we could ask the question, well, what does that mean for us today? What does that, how does that land in our lives today? Jesus is inviting us to ask a question about our lives. And the question is, do I believe my best days are ahead of me? Do I believe when I look at my life, when I look at the circumstances I'm facing right now, when I hear about the latest shooting that happened in the news, it's tragic, do I really believe my best days are ahead of me? Because here's the thing, the Jewish people at this time, they did not believe that. They believed their best days were behind them. In fact, what they believed about the Messiah, they believed this Messiah was coming. And when the Messiah came, what he was going to do is he was going to be a great king like King David had been. And he was going to bring Israel back to the good old days. He was going to make it the way it used to be. Because our best days are behind us. Our best days were back here. And so that was, his whole, that was what they believed. That was their whole message. The Messiah, he's going to come. He's going to be just like King David. It'll be just the way it used to be again. The problem with that is that's not a vision of the future. That's a vision of the past. And Jesus came to say, look, all the past, everything that came before, it all pointed to me. I'm doing something new. Your best days, you ain't even seen yet. No matter what you're dealing with, no matter what brokenness is on you in this world, your best days, if, for those of us who are in Jesus and have put our faith and our trust in him, just like the disciples did at the end of that story, our best days are always ahead of us. They have yet to come. That's what Jesus is doing. By the way, the gospel writer John just keeps telling that story over and over again all throughout his gospel. In fact, this miracle was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did. We just read that. But there are actually seven miraculous signs in the gospel of John where John actually calls them signs. They were something that pointed to the true nature of, what, of who Jesus was in his mission. Here they are very quickly. Um, we just talked about the first one. The water into wine was the first miraculous sign. The second one was the healing of the official son. John says that was a miraculous sign. He clues us in. The next one, John 5, the healing at the pool. We're going to look at that next week, actually. He goes all the way through. The, last, the seventh miraculous sign in the Gospel of John was raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, why is that significant that there were seven? In Jewish consciousness, seven was the number of completeness. Jewish people were very into numerology and all that kind of stuff. And so seven, God created the earth in seven days. Well, he created it in six days and he rested on the seventh. So seven was the number of creation. Seven was the number of wholeness, of completeness. So it makes sense there would be seven miraculous signs in the Gospel of John that point to Jesus. But actually, I lied to you. There's not seven, there's eight. There's an eighth miraculous sign that's something that John calls a miraculous sign in the Gospel of John. Do you, know, uh, you know what it was? I'll give, yes, yes. We celebrated it last week. Resurrection. Resurrection. 
It was Easter. Easter was the eighth miraculous sign in the Gospel of John that John says this pointed to who Jesus really was. Well, that makes no sense. If for a Jewish person, why would there be eight? Seven is the number of completeness. Seven is the number of wholeness. What, what's happening here is very clever. What John is doing and the way he's, he's put together his material is he's showing us eighth, the eighth one, the resurrection was not number eight. It actually was number one. It was God starting over again with a whole new creation. The resurrection, when Jesus rose to life, was the beginning of a whole new creation, a whole new world that was happening right now for eternity in the midst of this one right here, right now. Because our best days are ahead of us. The resurrection was number one, a a new sign of God saying, the best is yet to come. You haven't even seen the best yet. Our best days are ahead of us. That's what we're celebrating in baptism. In fact, the whole symbol of baptism is a reenactment of Jesus' death and resurrection. So, Uh, The book of Romans talks about, in Romans 6, how we're buried with Christ in baptism. So just like Jesus died and was buried, when we go down into the water of baptism, what we're saying is, I'm dying to my old life. I'm dying to me trying to fix myself, to dipping my hands in the water and making myself ritually pure, of purifying myself from my sin, my own ability. I can't do it. Nobody ever has been able to. We're saying, I'm dying to my, my ability to do that for myself. And just like Jesus rose from the grave, when we come up out of the water, the symbolism is we're saying, I'm, I'm walking into a new life that Jesus has won for me. I'm, I'm part of this new kingdom. I'm part of this new creation that's going to go on for all of eternity that the resurrection started the party of. I'm part of that. We call baptism going public with your faith because it's a symbol that, that represents, I'm going public, I'm telling the world, I'm announcing it to my church family, I'm part of what Jesus was here to announce in this very first miracle, the gospel message, that there is new life in Jesus. My best days are ahead of me. They're not behind me. A few, several years ago, actually, it's been now, uh, I had a significant conversation with somebody here in our church that, that really changed the game for me. Uh, it was during a time of, of great discouragement in my life. Our son, Aaron, had been diagnosed with autism. And at about five years old, he still was not speaking. Actually, he was, there was a lot of things he was not doing for himself. And uh, my wife and I, we were just extremely discouraged. Now, he's 13 years old today, and I'm, I'm blown away. I would call it a miracle in our family of just the development that has happened in his life, how far he has come and how, how much he's able to do. He's, he, it's, a, it's absolutely amazing development. But at that time in our lives, when he was five years old, uh, we had so much discouragement, and we, we didn't know what does this mean for his future, what does this mean for us. And every day, we were just taking care of all kinds of issues and needs that we felt completely overwhelmed by and out of sync to be able to accomplish. And there was this family in our church at the time here at Frontline, and they had an adult son. He was in his 20s who had severe autism. And he lived at home, and his mother took care of him. Even in his 20s, she took care of every need he had. He didn't speak. He had seizures uh, and a whole bunch of other medical issues. And basically every single need he had as a human being, someone else had to interact and help him with. 
and severely autistic. And so this, this mother, she stayed at home and she took care of her son, even in his 20s. And every day she dealt with all these issues and all these things. And during this period of time of great discouragement, I remember uh, I had a conversation with her. Actually, it happened right there. It happened in this room right there. And I said to her, I I was kind of going on and on about how discouraged I was with where we were with Aaron. And I said, how do you do it? Like, what do you do when you get discouraged? Your son, the issues that he faces are, are just so daunting. How do you do it? And this is what she said to me. She said, whenever I get discouraged, I just remember that someday I will meet my son. And I wasn't following her. And so I said, what do you mean? You've already met your son. And she said, no, I have not. I've met a version of my son with the brokenness of this world on him in ways that are not his fault and that he cannot help. Then she said, but someday, when the veil of this world is pulled back and we stand with Jesus in the restored creation that he has won for us, in that day, I will meet my son as he truly is. And in that day, I will have joy that I can't even imagine right now. And a few years ago, in in 2016, her son had a massive seizure and he died. And uh, at, her, at his funeral, I reminded her of that conversation and I told her how much that conversation had meant to me, how much it had encouraged me and given me, just shaped my perspective in a way that I so desperately needed during that period of time. And we both wept and she, and she said, that's right, I'm one step closer. I'm one step closer to that moment. The reason I tell you that is because for every single one of us in this room, we have never met any of us as we truly are. None of us has met each other how we truly are. Every human relationship that we have, every interaction that we have, everything that we deal with, we are covered in the sin and the brokenness of this world. But someday, when the veil of this world is pulled back, We are going to stand before Jesus as he truly is, and we are going to stand before him as we truly are because of what he won for us on the cross and by his resurrection. And that is the moment. That is what it means to look forward and and believe your best days are always ahead of you. Your best days are not behind you. They are ahead of you. And that's what we celebrate in baptism. So here's what I want to do. The band is going to come out, and we are going to enter into a baptism celebration now. And so let me just kind of describe for you, if I could, what's going to happen uh, in this moment. What we're going to do is I'm going to offer a prayer and then we're going to stand and sing a song together. And when we sing, uh, when we stand and sing together, what I want you to do is if you came this morning, you're ready to be baptized, you're, you're ready to take that step, I want you to head over here to this side of the stage and we've got some staff members who will be over here. Chris will be over here. Dan and Laurel Peacock will be over here. Please come over and stand right here while we sing this song. And um, then we'll take a break for a minute and we'll start baptizing people. And, and we're excited and we're ready to baptize you. And uh, here's what I want to say to you. Maybe you came this morning and you didn't let us know you were planning to get baptized. Maybe, maybe you weren't even planning to get baptized when you came here this morning. But you know... Maybe last week you you made a decision for Christ. Maybe you surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you know it's time for me 
to lay it all aside. It's not about becoming perfect enough to get baptized. That misses the whole point of baptism. The point of baptism is that Jesus finished the work for us on our behalf on the cross and the resurrection and in him we have a new life. And if that's you and if you know it's time to step into that and to go public with your faith, I want you to make a bold move. I want you to get up and I want you to come over here and join us on this side of the stage and get baptized with those who walk up this morning. You say, well, that's crazy. I'm not prepared for that. I just want you to know we have towels. Um, We're ready here. We've got t-shirts and we have bathrooms um, this way and over here in the lobby, uh, multiple places around the building where you can change afterward. And hey, we didn't get the snow and the cold that we thought we were going to get. So don't be a wuss, okay? In the the name of Jesus, I mean that with love. If God's done a work in your life, if he's made you new, go for it. Just go for it. And uh, we'll celebrate that with you. So if we could, I'd love to offer a prayer and then we'll stand and sing. Lord Jesus, we just come before you in this place and we recognize that it's not our ability to purify ourselves. It doesn't depend on us. Miracles happen and they still happen in our world when our greatest needs meet your resurrection power to provide in our lives. So we just recognize, God, that even in, as you turn water into wine and you announce the kingdom, you pointed toward, you, you announced that it pointed toward you. We come to you. We, we know we can only find salvation. We can only find new life. We can only find wholeness and healing ultimately in you, Jesus, and only in you. And so this morning, God, we want to celebrate that. As, as those who get baptized, uh, uh, God, we celebrate death to life. We celebrate new hope. We celebrate real hope of what it means to follow after you for our whole lives. And so, God, uh, we just put your glory on display this morning. We thank you that our best days are always ahead of us. No matter what we're facing, no matter what brokenness that we are encountering in our world, our best days are always ahead of us. So we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's stand, would you, and sing with us. And if you're ready to get baptized, come and join us right over here.